This podcast was brought to you by Hearing the Voice. Recorded on the 7th of July 2016 at a workshop that we hosted on prediction and hallucination, it features Dr. Ben Alderson Day on what's new about prediction. If you'd like to hear more about our research into voice hearing, or just keep in touch with us on a more regular basis, you can visit our website, hearingthevoice.org, or tweet us at hearingvoice. Now, what I'm going to try to do very briefly in my introductory talk this morning um, is go over three key issues um, in relation to hallucination prediction. First of all, what are we talking about when we talk about hallucinations? Secondly, um, what constitutes a predictive approach to hallucination? Um, what do we really mean by a predictive processing framework? And finally, how does that differ from what came before, from some of the key theories that drove research uh, primarily on auditory hallucinations over the past uh, 20 or 30 years? Um, so to start off with a fairly uh, common or garden uh, definition uh, hallucination of hallucination, this is from uh, Tony David writing in 2004 in Cognitive Neuropsychiatry. He defines hallucination as a sensory experience which occurs in the absence of corresponding external stimulation of the relevant sensory organ, has a sufficient sense of reality to resemble a veridical perception over which the subject does not feel she has direct uh, or voluntary control and which occurs in the awake state. Now, many of these features, um, the absence of external stimulation, um, sufficient sense of reality, um, resembling something veridical, these are things that you'll see in, in lots of the definitions used in um, the hallucinations literature in psychology, psychiatry, neuroscience. Uh, there's one or two bits that David seeks to emphasize himself, such as um, occurring in the awake state. Um, we know that many unusual percepts occur around the boundaries of sleep, known as um, hypnagogia and hypnopompic hallucinations. Um, in some ways, they resemble the hallucinations we see, for example, in um, various um, psychiatric disorders. But in other ways, they also seem to be driven by their own particular processes, which aren't necessarily um, uh, very identical with most other kinds of hallucinations. So quite often, people try and stick to the, the awake state for studies of um, hallucinations in themselves and keep sleep-related experiences separate. Um, also, you'll often see this idea of uh, a hallucination really being close to a veridical perception. Um, I think we, we might want to question that at some points over the next couple of days, not least because often when people report experiencing uh, voices or visions or um, other unusual percepts, very often there might also be a change in terms of their overall sensory environment. Sometimes people talk about um, a delusional mood where there's extra saliency attached to other things going on. So the sense in which um, a voice or a vision is um, just like a veridical perception can, can be questioned somewhat. Nevertheless, this is, a, this is a fairly representative definition of what gets used. Um, and when we talk about hallucinations, a lot of the time we are talking about voices, auditory verbal hallucinations. Um, in schizophrenia, the disorder that they're still most associated with, you tend to see statistics around 60 to 90% of cases will experience auditory hallucinations regularly, the vast majority of which will be verbal, will be hearing voices. Um, different surveys estimate around 5 to 15% of the general population will have some experience of hearing voices that other people cannot hear, although the actual percentage of people having this as a very regular experience without needing mental health support is probably very, very low, around about less than 1%. Um, nevertheless, those populations um, do exist and we actually have a number of people in the audience over the next couple of days who've been working to build up those um, samples for um, research studies. Um, we also um, hear about voices and auditory hallucinations 
in various other psychiatric conditions such as bipolar disorder, PTSD and major depression. But the vast, vast majority of research on hallucinations are on auditory hallucinations in the context of schizophrenia and psychosis more generally. Um, there's also a, um, a decent amount of work that's been done on visions and visual hallucinations, primarily in relation to um, organic neurological disorders such as uh, Parkinson's disease and Lewy body dementia. There's also a, a decent prevalence of visual experiences within post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Visual experiences also occur in schizophrenia. Um, they're probably underrepresented because many of the interview scales that we used often don't actually ask in much detail about visual experiences, but they definitely occur. It's relatively rare that they would occur in the absence of auditory, auditory hallucinations as well, although not necessarily at the same time. So often people in schizophrenia will have visual hallucinations, but they're probably also going to have auditory hallucinations at some point. And finally, research on hallucinations in relation to other senses, such as um, touch, uh, taste or smell, um, there's relatively little compared to voices and visions. Again, uh, these kinds of hallucinations can occur in psychosis, um, but relatively rarely in, and um, barely ever in the absence of auditory hallucinations also occurring. Um, and there's also um, a certain amount of work that's been done on what, on what are known as felt presence or sensed presence hallucinations. So people experiencing the presence of um, some sort of being or person, uh, usually quite close by um, in relation to them, but sometimes in the absence of clear um, sensory markers. So they don't necessarily have a clear visual outline, they don't necessarily speak. Um, sometimes they'll have concurrent kind of tactile experiences associated with them, but much more like a kind of feeling of hairs on the back of your neck because the presence is nearby. Um, those sorts of experiences are quite common in, in, for example, Parkinson's disease, and they're often referred to as extra campaign um, hallucinations, although the literature is divided on whether we should consider them um, exactly the same thing as extra campaign. And um, uh, they also, interestingly, um, sometimes occur in the context of voices. So one thing that our group have been very interested in recently are cases of people who regularly hear voices also saying that they can actually experience their voices even when they're not speaking. And often they talk in the language of a presence or an entity which is somehow close by or with them. Um, so what are we talking about when we talk about hallucinations? Well, in terms of the vast majority of the research that's been conducted, we're talking primarily about auditory experiences, but possibly with a view to more domain general processes. It seems like if you have uh, auditory hallucinations, it's quite possible that you will actually have some experiences in other domains. And equally, if we want to have an overall account of why hallucinations occur, then we need to have a view to um, actually mechanisms that occur across various different modalities. Secondly, um, primarily we're talking about experiences in psychosis and the majority of talks that we have over the next couple of days um, are based on research in psychosis itself, although not exclusively. And again, um, whenever we're thinking about putting together an explanation or a theory of why hallucinations may be occurring, we need to think about is this a theory that could apply across disorders or is this a theory which really only applies just to psychosis? Um, so, moving on to the next question, what constitutes a predictive approach, a predictive processing or predictive coding approach to hallucination? Um, well, since around about um, 2009, really, there's been a, a real upswell of um, different theories and ideas about ways in which we should understand hallucination as a result of some sort of predictive state. Um, the, the paper that many people start with um, uh, is from Paul Fletcher and Chris Frith um, that talked about a Bayesian approach to hallucinations um, and they state very briefly that 
The positive symptoms of schizophrenia are not just hallucinations, but also delusions, unusual beliefs, are caused by an abnormality in the brain's inferencing mechanisms, such that new evidence, including sensations, is not properly integrated, leading to false prediction errors. Um, a more recent example is from uh, Renaud Jardry um, and Sophie Deneuve in, um, in France. Um, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but essentially they, they talk about um, hallucinations occurring in the context of bottom-up sensory information and top-down predictions being uh, reverberating and ultimately confused. Um, and actually, if you, going back a bit further, many people reference um, a, a really a kind of small commentary piece that Carl Friston um, wrote in 2005 in response to one of Daniel Colleton's articles that argued that um, hallucinations could easily occur from um, a problem of false inference, where essentially there isn't a problem with estimating a sensory state, but there's a problem with encoding the uncertainty. So a lot to unpack there. What I'm going to do now is try and offer a very brief overview of what these different explanations say and what, share and what exactly um, they're trying to say in terms of a potential way that hallucinations could occur. Now, um, if you permit an uh, imprecise toy example, um, a classic model of how perception occurs is that lower level feature detectors, uh, such as V1 cells, for example, pass information up a cortical hierarchy to more abstract levels of object and concept recognition. Um, and we could think about, say, the information of the visual system passing through V1 to V5 and moving on to places such as the fusiform face area for processing of a very specific um, kind of object and feature-related detail. Um, usually, predictive approaches are characterized in a very different way, which is to emphasize exactly a different flow of information. They argue that um, perceptions should be understood more as probabilistic models of the world, which are constantly revised based on beliefs or expectations. Now, I put um, Bayesian in this context. Um, that's not necessarily something which always has to be part of predictive approaches. Nevertheless, at least within the hallucinations and psychosis literature, the sense of prediction and the fact that it is governed by Bayesian ideas that we're constantly updating our probabilities um, is very much knitted together. And again, that's something we might want to think about a bit more over the next couple of days about how they tease apart. Um, but really a key feature of this approach um, is an emphasis on um, this thing, prediction error. Um, a key idea of reversing the flow of information here is while we're making predictions um, based on our top-down expectations, we're also taking into account the errors, the gaps in our predictions from uh, the information coming in from the sensory array. Whenever we get enough error, we have to revise a prediction at a different level of the cortical hierarchy. Um, and that is what, uh, what defines really the predictive coding approach, is this emphasis on the minimization of something uh, of prediction error, the information coming back up the cortical hierarchy here. Um, a key thing, though, is that we don't always revise according to any errors that we get. Um, the errors are prioritized based on their precision or the confidence we have that they're actually providing us kind of useful information. And the, the expected precision, the expected confidence is driven by, over time, a learning of the kind of the standard patterns of your environment. For example, if we're in a dark room or if it's nighttime, we may actually pay less attention to our errors because we know that actually the informational load isn't, isn't, very, um, isn't very high. Um, and instead, we might prioritize something like top-down predictions in terms of our percepts. So, um, Nothing new here for um, uh, prediction theorists and prediction researchers, um, probably a lot of imprecision too, but um, hopefully just an overview for those of you who are less familiar with the predictive processing framework. Um, applied to hallucinations then, the idea of unusual percepts or um, uh, non-vertical percepts arising 
could actually happen in various different ways. Um, they're cashed out in different theories, um, not necessarily in incompatible or exclusive ways, but in ways that emphasize different parts of this hierarchy. For example, in Fletcher and Frith, they're talking primarily about problems with updating expectations in a Bayesian way. So based on your prior experiences, you're not changing your new predictions sufficiently. Um, another thing emphasized, for example, by Jakob Howie um, is the idea that an overweighting of particular prize in the absence of a correct sensory input could also lead to um, an unusual um, percept uh, occurring. Um, and similar ideas are expressed in a very recent paper by um, Phil Corlett. Um, in uh, Jardry and Deneuve, they talk about actually maybe unusual experiences could occur at different levels of this, this hierarchical processing unit uh, because of a confusion between prediction and error. So if there's a problem with the, in, uh, the balance of excitatory and inhibitory cells at a particular level of the cortical hierarchy, um, then what you get is um, signal being confused for noise at different stages. Um, and finally, um, going back to the Friston quote, we could also think there's a problem primarily with estimating the uncertainty of a particular prediction, and that could give rise instead to um, a prediction being given undue weight. And indeed, across all these different ideas, what you could, the way you could characterize uh, a predictive approach to hallucination is this idea that unusual percepts arise from sensory models of the world which are given undue weight in some way compared to incoming sensory information. So finally, how does that differ from what came before? How is this a, a new approach? Why is it interesting to look at it now? Well, um, the idea of um, hallucination prediction being uh, important to Unite is, is not a new idea. Um, often you'll see in the literature people talking about uh, using this quote from Helmholtz of all perception being in some way a controlled form of hallucination um, and being in some way part of a sensory predictive process. Um, immediately in the context of psychosis, people like um, Feinberg and Frith, who usually are referenced in terms of um, their models of how unusual percepts and unusual experiences could arise from um, the architecture of the motor system. Um, so what we have here on the right-hand side is a, is a sketch model, really, of um, how unusual experiences could arise from uh, what we understand of ordinary processing of the motor system. Um, the idea is briefly this, that whenever we have an intention or an idea to act, uh, initially we have an inverse model, which is a, a kind of plan in negative of what, what's about to happen. And that leads to the issuing of motor commands and motor copy to create a motor action. But we also do something else. We produce something called an efference copy, which produces a forward model of the sensory consequences of our actions. Those sensory consequences, sometimes referred to as a corollary discharge, would usually end up matching up with the actual sensory state the, uh, the end point of our, of our motor action. When those things don't match up, some very unusual things can occur. There can be real experiences of a loss of agency. Similarly, if you create unusual situations where they do match up but they shouldn't, you can induce agency or ownership which shouldn't be there. Uh, the most common example of that is something like the rubber hand illusion, where we actually synchronize people's um, kind of uh, predictive um, expectations and their own proprioceptive cues we end up with a sense that one person's hand doesn't belong to them. Similarly, if you disrupt this process, people can have a feeling that maybe um, an action doesn't belong to them in some way. Or similarly, when they're speaking, that a sound that they've produced doesn't belong to them. Um, when coming back to the idea of hallucinations, this, this has been extended to the idea that a hallucination could occur because of a failure to properly monitor or model one's own internal actions. And I put those in scare quotes deliberately because it's a highly contentious issue still 
about whether we could, could consider internal cognitions in some way similar or using the same sort of architecture as external actions. Um, most notably, Sean Gallagher has taken issue with, with that idea um, in his analysis of um, auditory hallucinations. In the 2000s, we saw these models being more refined and extended to apply specifically to the idea of um, auditory hallucinations resulting from misattributed inner speech rather than inner switch. Um, this is uh, an example from Mark Seal and colleagues in 2004, essentially following the same principles as the sketch I showed you a slide ago. Um, in this, they argue that a failure to produce the right sort of forward model or predictive process leads to a mismatch in the comparison between the actual sensory experience and a predicted sensory experience. And they say then if you've got uh, particular appraisals or metacognitive views that uh, certain cognitions or uh, certain experiences don't belong to you, then actually you're going to interpret this mismatch, this ambiguity, as something external, as something as an auditory hallucination. Um, another version of that model that actually emphasises the sense of self-authorship um, that comes with motor action um, what came from Simon Jones and Charles Fernyhove, the Hearing the Voice team, um, and they argue that in a different way we can still end up with the same sort of experience of a voice occurring as a result of people not monitoring um, in a speech very well. Now, a key point about these models is they can work to a certain extent as long as we assume that inner speech, internal language, follows fairly similar principles to external speech. Um, we know that external speech involves as a various kinds of signals being sent around the rest of the brain to prepare for sensory prediction. We know that when we speak out loud, we tend to dampen down auditory cortex. There is also some evidence that when people produce inner speech, we also see um, uh, concurrent patterns within sensory perception areas, speech perception areas, um, in parallel with speech production. And many of the, um, uh, the neurological bases of inner speech and external speech are shared. Nevertheless, um, it may lead some people to think that we're arguing that all thought should be considered for some form of motor action. And I think that would, that would be a, a seriously uh, questionable claim. So um, what we've had for a number of years is this idea of an inner speech model that could create voices and voice hallucinations at least, but a certain amount of kind of assumptions and baggage that has to come with that for it to actually work. Um, so how is predictive coding um, different from that? In a sense, it's all about prediction. It's all about kind of making sure that your sensory predictions are correct. Is it really something new to talk about uh, prediction in this way? Um, well, one key element of the predictive processing approach is it, uh, it's a probabilistic model of the world that we're creating, both in terms of a prediction that something is there in the sensory array, but also in terms of its precision, its confidence. So two different levels of probabilistic explanation. Um, within forward modeling, within motor modeling, there's no reason why that couldn't be cast out in a probabilistic way, but usually within the hallucinations literature, it isn't talked about in that way. So there's a potential for opening up other boundaries and thinking about the whole thing as being a probabilistic model uh, in the predictive approach. Secondly, a key point here is that what we have in the predictive framework is a hierarchical series of inferences being made as opposed to one nexus of comparison. Indeed, there's no real point of a uh, of comparison between prediction and action within um, a predictive approach. Instead, what we have constantly at each level of a cortical hierarchy is this mixture of prediction and prediction error, trying to resolve the best predictions. And a series of predictions are going on in terms of like more abstract and more concrete uh, percepts and cognitions. Um, some people have argued that we can think about forward models as being one part of an overall predictive framework Indeed, for example, people like um, Judy Ford and her lab in the States 
have argued that um, we can think about sensory prediction, speech prediction as just being one particular motor-based example of an overall predictive processing framework. Um, however, um, other people would really disagree with that and say, if you, well, if you sign up for a predictive processing approach, then we don't need these two kind of parallel uh, processes of motor, uh, motor copy and efference copy of action and sensory prediction. Everything is just, in a way, sensory prediction or inference prediction. Um, and uh, Pickering and Clark had quite a nice um, article a couple of years ago talking through how the forward model really fits in with those, with those approaches in the context mainly of speech and language. Um, and finally, um, uh, this may have already kind of come out in the way I've been talking about this approach, but that um, the idea of predictive processing or predictive coding, um, it, it's not just a kind of motor-based idea, clearly, compared to forward modeling. It's a model of, of pretty much everything going on in the brain, in theory. It's a model of perception, cognition, and action, in which uh, the importance of sensory prediction is something which is key to understanding beliefs. It's key to understanding why motor actions occur at all, um, you, you quite often see actions actually being referred to as a form of active inference and a form of, a form of prediction in themselves within the wider uh, literature on predictive coding. Um, so really it's looking a lot broader than any sort of specifically motor-based or forward modelling approach um, in terms of its implications for hallucinations. And what that gives us is a range of um, uh, opportunities really. Um, for the one part, it allows us a closer integration of um, beliefs and perceptions such as um, unusual delusions and hallucinations. And indeed, the article from Fletcher and Frith in 2009 was very much arguing for that, that this, this unites, in a, kind of, in a Bayesian sense, what we can do is unite our different models of the, the symptoms of positive symptoms of psychosis. Um, in moving away from the uh, motor-based approach, we've actually got the potential to allow for a more multimodal hallucination framework, um, both within and across disorders. So, um, we're not necessarily saying, well, we know how it could work for speech architecture. We're unsure about how it would work for visual architecture and, you know, smell-based hallucinations. Well, I'm sure there's a forward model there somewhere. Um, instead, within a predictive approach, um, potentially, we could, we could account for all of them in some way. Um, we have an account thinking about precision and confidence of why some environments would really engender unusual percepts, or at least a more refined account. Um, for example, as I've said before, in a darkened situation or a darkened room, we might pay more, um, give more weight to our sensory predictions. Um, for example, we might think we see a shadowy figure there um, uh, when we're in our room at night time, we wake up. Um, and we don't necessarily get that when we're just thinking about first order, order kind of forward models or sensory models. Um, finally, what we have here is the potential for a kind of more integrated neurobiological account um, of hallucinations. Um, and there's been lots of work already on how prediction areas related to dopamine signaling um, in frontal cortex and striatum, and also um, its relation to delusion, delusion proneness within psychosis. Um, indeed, a lot of the work that's been done so far on prediction and um, psychosis has been really kind of delusion first and delusion based. And one of the interesting things we want to look at over the next couple of days is how that really extends across fully into an account of hallucinations. Now, to finish off with some slightly unfair questions, we could also think about what this approach leaves out. Um, the first thing is, if we do move away from, a, say, a speech or a motor-based model, what kind of specific account do we have of auditory hallucinations? What would it be on its own for an auditory hallucination to occur? Is it just the same as uh, the updating of beliefs in relation to delusions, or is it something more specifically tied to the feeling of auditoriness? and the processing of uh, predictions within auditory cortex and speech areas. 
Um, secondly, a question which has also been dealt with in the delusions literature, why do hallucinations persist? Why would it be that actually in the face of fairly contradictory sensory information, you'd actually have a constant expectation, say, of a voice or of identity over time? Why so many voices? Why, going back to my slide about the amount of research, but also what we think about the prevalence of auditory hallucinations, why is it the voices seem to some, to some degree overrepresented both in clinical mental health contexts and in more general population? Um, what role does interoception play within this whole process? Uh, one thing I haven't talked about much so far, but um, in what we get from accounts of people hearing voices that, is that very often the onset of voices is associated with a range of different uh, bodily reactions, experiences, sometimes very situated experiences of voices such as uh, voices within the stomach, voices coming from different parts of the body, voices making it feel like um, your head is on fire or that your whole skin is tingling. Um, there's very much a sense in which people's immediate phenomenology of experiencing voice hallucinations is related to a, a range of different um, tactile and interoceptive cues as well. Um, why agents? Um, this is something that we see um, often in people's accounts of voices. Again, you see it in delusions too of very often unusual percepts or beliefs being directed towards particular social identities, particular agents in people's lives or environments. Um, it's not necessarily clear what kind of information, say, a predictive um, processing framework gives us for thinking about specific identities and agents, although there are some interesting avenues to explore. Um, equally, though, this is a problem that's been noted for a while about the um, forward modelling and kind of speech monitoring approach to auditory verbal hallucinations. Um, and finally, a question um, which m could be answered by some of these new approaches, but may actually be an answer for more for clinicians, more for management of experiences, uh, why are some hallucinations problematic? We know that some people have very unusual perceptual experiences and never have a need to access mental health support. Um, what is it about those experiences that um, makes them manageable, whereas others aren't? It could be something to do with attributions, it could be something to do with the content of hallucination, but is there anything about this new framework that would actually explain why some people have very persistent and very unmanageable experiences in terms of um, hallucination? Um, so I'm going to stop there, um, just with offering a very quick summary. Um, what we talk about when we talk about hallucinations? Well, primarily the auditory domain and primarily psychosis, but we don't want to be thinking just exclusively about that. Um, what would constitute a predictive approach? Well, I would argue that what they all share is this idea that um, our sensory models of the world or probabilistic models are given undue weight in the predictive approach. And how does that really differ from what came before? Well, it allows us potentially an account of hallucination which could be truly multisensory. And actually, we could place hallucination not within a, um, a bespoke theory, but a much broader theory of perception, cognition and action. Um, so a raise of questions right, um, there. Um, and I'm going to say thanks, but really I'm also going to say over to you. Thank you very much for coming again. Thank you for listening to me. And hopefully we're going to have some really interesting discussions over the next couple of days. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts produced by Hearing the Voice, you can visit our website at hearingthevoice.org or join us on Twitter at Hearing Voice.